This is Dan Chappell. He's a dear friend, and um, we just want to honor uh, God's work in his life, and so let's just welcome him. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, uh, it's really exciting for us to be here. Uh, I know a lot of people in this audience and uh, a lot of the faces here. Um, let me make sure I'm... Are we up? Okay. Um, so I know a lot of faces in the room, and it's, it's, so it's, it's kind of like a homecoming. But I want to say this. Um, we really, really have designed this whole seminar, training, workshop, interchangeable words. We really want this to be the type of thing where you roll up your sleeves and you ask the hard questions in a very safe environment. And so um, part of doing that, we've prayed a lot, but I want to pray for us and uh, just ask that God would allow this room to be a safe place for people to, to ask really tough questions, maybe embarrassing questions. Uh, there's nothing you can do mostly, to offend me, uh, and uh, it's, it's, so I, I really want, it is our heart's prayer that this would be of a, of a real benefit for you, and that the goal, you know, people ask me all the time, what's your, what's your goal? The goal is that we would move the needle in our ability to reach one of the most difficult sectors of our population in the United States of America and really around the world. But America, we're, we're really behind on this conversation. And so um, just let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of grace and the reconciling love of the gospel. God, I pray that um, the way that has radically changed lives in this room, that we would long to see it change the lives of people in Raleigh, North Carolina that we would want to reach what many consider the unreachable, that we would want to reach and love many that are deemed unlovable and the existence of whom causes a lot of anxiety for people. And so, God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. I pray that you would send your spirit here to overwhelm us with uh, a sense of peace and a sense of boldness to to learn and grow and and be changed and to challenge each other so that uh, the church that's represented in this room that is a part of the church in Raleigh, North Carolina would do the work of the ministry to uh, love the vulnerable and uh, the uh, sexual minorities in our midst. And so we love you and we praise you for Jesus and it's his name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, what we're going to do, just to start off, we've done a little introduction. I'm not going to say a lot about the Identify Network, uh, maybe later in between, if you'd like to talk to us a little bit about uh, those, uh, our ministry, I'd love to talk to you about it. But uh, for now, in between, what we're going to do is uh, show you a little bit of a video that gives a background to our story, and then we'll move forward from there. struggle with same-sex attraction. 
for most of my life, I let the fact that I experienced same-sex attraction identify me. The fact that I struggle with same-sex attraction has caused me a lot of pain, not just because of myself, but because of what I thought God thought about me. At the very beginning, when we started dating, I remember our first time going out, um, he was just open and honest with me and shared what his struggles, his lifelong struggle, and um, what God had done into his life up to that point. For much of my life, and even in my marriage, I lived with the shame that I experienced same-sex attraction rather than living with the redemptive identity of Christ. The Identify Network uh, is kind of created out of our hearts and a calling that God has put on our life um, for the last few years. And we finally have taken that step of uh, realizing that the church uh, is in need to an extent of a better conversation and a better culture surrounding same-sex attraction and people living with uh, sexual identity and gender identity struggles. So our purpose is uh, to equip and resource uh, the local church to be uh, a place of counsel, discipleship, and care for those living with same-sex attraction and those impacted in their families by same-sex attraction and gender identity issues. I think what causes me the most pain is see the way we in the church and people that are near and dear to my heart continue to maybe trip over ourselves in the way we decide to respond to the cultural narrative. And if the church is going to have relevance in this area going forward, we need to see the people sitting next to us in church, the people sitting in our living rooms, in our families, and in our homes, and in our neighborhoods as the primary place of ministry and care in changing the culture and changing the conversation. So if you want to be a part of the Identify Network, we want you to be a part of it with us. If you're a church that believes you need equipping, a pastor, a lay leader, someone in your congregation who needs equipping, we want to be a part of that. We want to come and we want to help equip you. If you're a Christian school who wants to have your students exposed to biblical truth and to talk about these issues in an open and protected way, we want to come alongside you and help equip you. If you are biblical counselors who want to partner with us, churches who want to partner with us, we want to partner with you and we'd love to have you on board with the Identify Network. Another way you can get engaged is to take advantage of our resources and to go to our website and read our articles that we have put posted there and look up the books that we recommend and also to sign up for our newsletter for to get bi-monthly communications in your inbox. Ultimately, this is about what God is doing in His kingdom and we want you to be involved with that. And if you feel passionate about this ministry and you're passionate about the church, you can visit us at identifynetwork.org. There's multiple places for you to partner with us and be a part of our monthly support team. Whether you want to do that as a one-time gift or whether you want to do that on an ongoing basis, we would be honored to have you as a part of our team. Well, I assure you, breakfast never looks like that in my house. That's why I watched the video and I'm like, never. Um, so those videos are 
semi-reality. Um, so uh, as we begin this, I, wanted, I really want to just hone in on the idea that uh, we're in need of a better conversation. And the reason that kind of has planted in my heart is 17 years ago when I became a believer and uh, God changed my life. Um, you're on this, uh, this high spiritually, and we all know what that's like. You're, you're passionate, you're, you're, you're just motivated for the gospel. Um, but the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he is waiting for us. And uh, if we aren't discipled well uh, in a, the context of the local church, uh, it's, it's, it can be devastating. And so there's not a lot of resources out there at the time. And so I went to a ministry here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the ecclesiology, the, the, the understanding of church was not good. And the theology was not great. Um, and uh, so I'm sitting in a support group listening to a group of individuals download for the week. And one of the guys says, uh, ever since I've been coming here for the last seven years, and I just, it hit me. I was like, I don't want to come here for seven more days. I, I can't imagine being here for seven years. This is not what God wants for us. And so I told the director of the ministry that I'd be leaving, and um, he informed me promptly and rudely uh, that I would be back in the life within a year because the church can't help me. And... Um, it was a seed planted in my heart then. I was like, that can't be true. By God's grace, I found a church in Raleigh, North Carolina that walked very well with me. And uh, a guy was faithful to put men in my life that helped me understand what it meant to be a biblical man and um, meet my wife. I can't talk about that without getting emotional. But uh, I learned a lot. And, uh, and so that passion never left us. And with everything that's been going on in the last few years and what we saw in the Overfeld case in the last year, this has all kind of come to a crescendo culturally. But the church, ministry-wise, has not come to that crescendo yet. And so we're having this massive cultural debate, and we're assuming that the conversation is happening in the church, and it's not. Not to the degree it needs to be happening. And so I will say today... I probably will push some of your buttons. I'm not trying to do that, not shock value, but I do want to make you think through assumptions, think through paradigms, think through core commitments that may be, may be more cultural than they are biblical. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one for us sometimes. Um, and, I, and I want you to, to really ask God to speak to your heart on these things. Um, because people of, of Christ with good conscience can disagree. And, and there are some liberty issues within this conversation. And there are some non-liberty issues within this conversation. Um, here's what we know. Uh, and I would say the gospel is not a liberty issue. We are never free not to love with the gospel. Never. What does that look like? There, therein lies the discussion, right? So I want to say this, 95% of evangelical pastors um, say that their theology of sexuality is fixed and it is unlikely to change. 95% say that it's fixed and unlikely to change. And what we want to do is step within that number and ask churches, okay, 
we don't want you to change your theology, especially if that theology is an orthodox understanding of human sexuality. So just to, I don't think I have to explain that, but a historic understanding of sex as a picture of, uh, within the context of marriage, as a picture of the gospel that's between one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. And that's a boiled down understanding of orthodox sexuality. We don't want you to change that theology. And it's not the theology probably that is causing so many problems. It's heart level commitments to cultural paradigms that lead us to fear what may be said of us, lead us, and probably more importantly, lead us to fear unfaithfulness to God. Everybody in this room wants to be faithful to God, and we want to honor him with our lives. We want to honor him with how we treat people. We want to honor him with being faithful with the words of the gospel, and so we don't always know how to have the conversation. And so we want to step within that number and help churches and help pastors figure out how to do this. We don't have all the answers. It would take a massive level of arrogance on my part to assume because of my background, I've got all the answers. I don't. I have an insight. But I don't have all the answers. But we're committed to pursuing this probably harder and longer and more than anybody else has time to so that we can be of benefit to the church. Because this conversation isn't happening in our churches, parachurch ministries are starting that run counterintuitive to the church. And we want people to come to TCC, and we want them to find homes and community and family of families here and resources to be loved well and challenged, but loved well in the context of biblical community, not in the context of a support group outside of church. Not that that's unbiblical, but I would just say that it's off target. Okay, And so the foundation for us doing ministry is a kingdom foundation. Now, this is going to seem, for many of you, you're going to say, of course. Um, You'd be surprised at how many don't start here. But they start with, okay, Romans 1. Or we start with uh, Leviticus 18, right? And we don't necessarily start with, let's back up 30,000-foot view What are our core commitments and foundations that are going to guide the way we think about everything? And we want to say that the kingdom, um, which Vaughn Roberts in uh, a great book, God's Big Picture, says it's God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Well, saying that here a little bit differently is that it's God's people on mission to increase the beauty, the desire, the passion, joy, and flavor of God in the world that he has created. We want a kingdom mentality to stick out of Raleigh, North Carolina. We want that kingdom mentality to grow wherever we put our foot down to do ministry. And so we think that the best paradigm to do that in is in the context of speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, that verse falls right in the middle of chapter 4, and the context is biblical discipleship. How are we going to raise our people well uh, to grow up in maturity? Well, we do that by speaking the truth in love. And so in this context, we want to argue that one of the greatest truths that we can offer you, and the fundamental truth that's true of every single person in this room, there is no escaping it, is that you are created in the image of a holy God. And so we want to say that that truth is that you, are, you have the Imago Dei. You are created with his communicable attributes and his joy, his grace, his faithfulness, his peace, All these things are upon you 
because God's created you in his image. And so from that, we would say that the, the love aspect is the gospel love. And again, we have some questions there, right? What does it mean to have love with the gospel? But gospel love is, is how we walk out that truth with people. And so the process of that is discipleship. And that, the goal of that discipleship is maturity. Not, all of this is not incredibly novel, but I will say this. Very few people that I talk to start with image of God as the fundamental way to view somebody. And we believe that that has an impact. I have great grid here. Uh, so uh, I did that myself. I'm proud. Uh, so we want to say that there's a direct relationship between how you view somebody as an image bearer and how you love them with the gospel. So, for instance, if you, don't, if you see somebody primarily as, as homosexual in your, in your community and you see them low, okay, they're addicted to pornography, um, meth addict, uh, um, prostitution, whatever it may be. That's the primary thing we see about them. We want to argue that gospel love is not going to be what it should be. And probably the prescription that you offer them is not going to be what it should be. But if you come in here and you have a very high view of someone as an image bearer, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're currently doing, no matter what they're likely to do in the next six months to a year, if you have a high view of them as an image bearer, you're going to walk long and well and, and, and strong with them with the gospel because you know something that a lot of people don't, that God is faithful to his promises, that he is the one who saves, that he is the one who sends the spirit to change hearts, and it is our job to love well with the words and deeds that represent the gospel. And we're going to do that. And we're going to do it for the long haul with relationship in mind in a way that doesn't shut the conversation down. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because it's really important. We've gotten into this thing in this um, ministry world these days where we feel like we have to say a certain number of things before we can do ministry. And we want to we reject that and buck up, buck up against that. So just uh, a recap of this. I don't know how far I can go. Uh, foundational truth, all humanity is created in the image of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and love inherent to them. Listen to that. Every single human being is worthy of dignity. Not because they in and of themselves are perfect or righteous, but they bear the image of God, and that image of God is not destroyed. It's marred. And so when you look at somebody, you're looking at an image bearer. 12 years of teaching high school, taped to my computer, they are made in God's image. <laughs> Seriously, I had to do that because I struggled with anger. And uh, as a father now, I have to look at my children and say, they're made in God's image. They are not my children first. They are not what they're doing right now first. Uh, they are made in God's image, and he wants them. And that's the question we have to ask in the context of this. When it comes to people living with same-sex attraction, when it comes to people that are um, living in the LGBT life, do you want them? Your God does. Do you? Julie Rogers, uh, who was a chaplain at Wheaton, um, has walked away from biblical truth and um, was living as a gay Christian. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and uh, ultimately left Wheaton because she affirmed same-sex marriage. 
uh, wrote about her experience in Time magazine, and no matter what you may think of what she has to say in her theology, she wrote a soul-crushing uh, statement. She said it, they should have been okay with the fact that they had someone who was willing to remain celibate that was among them that wanted to walk in righteousness and minister to the vulnerable in their communities. But uh, if I couldn't believe then that it was my struggle that made them anxious, I realized that it was my existence that made them anxious. That her very existence caused them to have real problems. And what's communicated in the process of that is we don't want you. Now, that may not be true of your heart, but that, that's what gets communicated sometimes of our wider community. And so that foundational love of the gospel has to be there. And then the foundational goal is biblical discipleship, producing maturity in Christ as a byproduct of speaking the truth in love. And, and keep in mind the goal. Look what we don't have up here as a goal, heterosexuality. Heterosexuality is not the goal because heterosexuality is not, I mean, homosexuality is not your main problem. Same-sex attraction has never been someone's main problem. Uh, gender identity struggle has never been someone's main problem. Pornography has never been someone's main problem. The need to be reconciled to the living God of the universe is their main problem. And so maturity in Christ is the main goal. And that's revolutionary for some people. Revolutionary. Um, so, a better conversation for effective ministry. So things we're going to look at here. Common language, causation, orientation, change, and identity importance. So, I'm going to run through those things uh, and make sure that, um, uh, I want to make sure we're keeping time uh, so that we have time for questions because I really want to leave time for you to ask questions. But this whole set right here that we're going to do is, is meant to help give you uh, an understanding and foundation of same-sex attraction, uh, the landscape as it is out there in our world today and culture as to what someone means when they say, I'm a gay Christian. Because depending on who you're talking to, just talking to my dad, I love my dad, he's just, tell, shoot it like it is. And so my dad's like, you can't be, somebody says they're a gay Christian, you can't be a gay Christian. Okay? Depending on what you mean by that. And that causes us to wince. A lot of us, because we're like, well, wait a minute. I've never heard that. I don't like that. But what we have to understand is that not everybody means the same thing when they say that anymore. And that good or bad, language is in flux. And these things, when you're talking to a millennial, you are not going to have the same conversation if you're talking to someone who's in the World War II generation or Generation X. It's not the same conversation. It's not the same language. Um, and that can be hard. But if we try to understand each other, if we're just willing to listen, it will prevent a lot of um, miscues and misunderstanding and really hurt, to be quite honest with you. Uh, so let's talk about uh, common language. Big, <laughs> I don't want to say, big G versus little g. Uh, so if someone says that I am gay, and so I, I just want to say right here, first of all, um, I've committed myself to research and understanding and reading, and this is what I'm doing my... Uh, my PhD in, and so I want to, I want to immerse myself in this, but I've, I have very few thoughts that are original to me, and I'll let you know when I have them, because uh, uh, I'm proud of them, uh, but uh, I don't have a lot of original thoughts, and I am very influenced by a number of resources, and I'll be more than happy to tell you who they are, and uh, some of those have been Rosaria Butterfield, uh, uh, Sam Alberry, um, and uh, most, well, Sam Williams, 
Southeastern Seminary, has been a dear friend and uh, just a dear counselor and uh, mentor in a lot of this. And uh, another one has been recently a guy by the name of Dr. Mark Yarhouse. And so I just want to play, show my cards out there and let you know that a lot of this is formulated from a number of different sources, and I'll be glad to talk to you about those. Uh, but when we talk about big G versus little G, if somebody says, I'm gay, what they may be saying to you is that I experience same-sex attraction, and this is how I fundamentally see myself. It is my identity, okay? This is the core of who I am. Uh, and so they have taken on big G, I am gay. I am part of the gay community. Uh, and so it becomes a functional, foundational identity, much like I am a Christian. It, is, it encompasses everything you are, and it, uh, it, or some people, I am a Baptist. I am a Southerner. Uh, it is your functional identity. It's where you work from for the, for the majority of your, uh, uh, your understanding. Little g is just to say, this is not who I fundamentally see myself as, um, but I do experience same-sex attraction. Um, I do believe there are some aspects of being gay that are redeemable, uh, and this is who I, uh, what I experience, but it is not who I am. Does that make sense? Okay. So when someone says I'm gay, it might be helpful to say, okay, talk to me about what you mean by that. And you might get a lot of different answers depending on who you're talking to. Rather than assuming, okay, boom, they're gay, I'm going to launch it in Romans 1, here we go. And, and oh, they're sitting there going, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't know me that well yet. Uh, because they might mean a whole different set of things, okay? So uh, gay identity is wrapped up into big G. This is an identity, and we're going to walk through that identity in a moment. This is how I see myself, and there are propositions that lead me to formulate that identity. We want to say that identity, sexual identity, is only one piece of a broader identity, and identity is made up of a number of different things. So actually what we want to do as an organization is say, actually, guys, hey, sexual identity should be de-elevated in our whole cultural conversation. Heterosexual identity, homosexual identity, uh, bisexual identity, transgender identity. We want to say those aren't the fundamental things about you. Go back. What is the fundamental thing about you? The fundamental thing about you is that you're created in the image of God. And so that changes what their greatest need is. Because if they're... If they're creating an image, then we believe that image is marred. So the greatest need of that individual is have that image restored, not he needs, Johnny needs to date a girl, right? That's not at all what he needs. Um, so uh, same-sex behavior is when someone acts upon same-sex desires. Um, or in the gender identity discussion, when somebody begins to walk into the gender that they believe is true of them that wasn't assigned at birth. And so they begin to find what they call congruence with an identity or a gender that doesn't look to be their gender, but it's who they believe they are. And so that's what we would call, we've moved now from, uh, not struggle, we've moved now from this is who I what I experienced to this is what I'm acting upon, okay? Big differences. 
Um, side A, side B. Okay, this comes from a book called Torn by a guy written by the name Justin Lee. Uh, Justin Lee is part of the Gay Christian Network. He's the head of the Gay Christian Network. Justin Lee, and they have side A and side B. And whether you agree with them or not, what's been helpful about this is at least they've tried to have a calm conversation between the groups, right? And uh, Justin, I've talked to the guy several times, very kind, very respectful and humble. Side A is we affirm same-sex relationships, we affirm same-sex identity, we affirm gay. Justin says, when I say I'm gay, I am not saying that I am sexually active. I am saying that I primarily and exclusively experience same-sex attraction. That doesn't mean he's saying he's active. So when he says, I am a gay Christian, he's not necessarily meaning I am an active gay man that's in a relationship, etc., or an active lesbian that's in a relationship, etc. So is it possible in that context to be a gay Christian? I'll let you, you don't have to answer out loud. We want to say yes, it is. We can talk about whether or not I think we should choose that identity. That's another discussion, right? But is it possible to someone to love the gospel, to have responded to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, to want to honor him with their life and their commitments, but understand themselves as gay because they understand that as an attraction, then yes, it is. I know there's going to be questions about that, so good. All right. Um, side B says we recognize same-sex behavior is there. Uh, but we don't affirm same-sex same relationships. We don't affirm uh, gay marriage. But, but we do understand same-sex identity is a reality, and therefore um, I can take on uh, the identity as a gay man, as a gay Christian, or a gay female, uh, and still be a Christian. This is where Wesley Hill and Julie Rogers and spiritual friendship in this organization started. Because what ultimately happened within the Gay Christian Network, everybody on their board, everybody in their whole organization is side A. And the side B people kind of slowly but surely got pushed out. Not with animosity, but it's just no longer a functioning part of the organization. So this is where spiritual friendship came. And a guy named Wesley Hill who wrote the book Washed in Waiting, and he wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, is they want to say that there's something to this understanding of a need. Because listen, if you say someone is primarily same-sex attracted, but they can't be in that relationship because of a commitment to who God is and a commitment to a biblical understanding of sexuality, you've got to understand that that person still has massive needs for intimacy. Right? And is the church providing opportunities for individuals who are not only celibate because this is their station in life at the moment, but they believe this will be their station in life forever. Are we providing opportunities for these individuals to be loved well without needing to get married off? Right? I've heard people say, singles ministries exist to get people married. Think of what that does to the, to the value and dignity of a single person, gay or straight. Yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, and as I was saying, I was like, I don't know if I made that distinction. Side A says, um, I experience 
uh, same-sex attraction. I am gay, and it is okay. And I can walk in that relationship, and God affirms that relationship, and it is a beautiful relationship, gay or straight. God has, God, homosexuality is not sin. Side B says that homosexuality, homosexual behavior is absolutely outside the orthodox understanding of what God designed. It is sin. Uh, but understanding myself as a gay Christian allows me to see the fullness of what gay may mean other than just sex. Does that make sense? Ish. Read the book. Uh, no. <laughs> well, I got to be honest because every, I mean, Casey, because I read the book and my wife's like, are you okay? Because every time I'm reading every page and I'm, because uh, I, ultimately I hear what you're saying, so I don't agree. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. I don't, laying it out doesn't necessarily mean I agree with all of it. Okay, I'll, I'll give you my opinion in a moment. Uh, spiritual friendship, talked a little bit about that. All, the only reason, we're just dipping your finger in the whole conversation and saying, if you feel a little bit confused, then all the more reason for you to try and deepen your understanding of the conversation and deepen your understanding of the way these words can be used interchangeably because it is confusing and if we don't make people define their terms and we don't ask people to go to a second level uh, understanding of what you just said to me then we may assume a lot of things about each other and if we assume things about each other ministry cannot happen well it cannot happen. It will e we'll either ignore things that do not need to be ignored, or we will assume things about you that aren't true of you and hurt you in the process. For instance, a good friend of ours, uh, I get emotional talking about it because she's been, she had struggled with same-sex attraction for years. We met her in Texas. And uh, she moved uh, to one of the larger cities in Texas. And she admitted she loved working with kids. She took care of our kids all the time and was great at it, is great at it. And she went to a church, and she confessed to one of the workers that she was working alongside in the nursery, hey, I just, you know, they were having a long conversation throughout the course of the, uh, the day, and she said, I, I, yeah, I struggle with same-sex attraction. And before she could tell her anything else about herself, this young lady began to minister her and preach the gospel to her. And that week she got a call from the elders saying that she could no longer serve in the children's ministry until this was resolved. So what did they assume about her? They assumed that same-sex attraction means pedophilia. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, correlations are not causations. They are not uh, direct uh, you know, the, we assume a lot about an individual without even knowing second level. We, this young lady didn't even get the second level of that conversation before a number of things were assumed about her. And it's hurtful and it's painful. And this young lady has nothing to do with the church today. Thankfully, she still keeps in touch with us. But she has nothing to do with the church because it broke her so deeply. Because things were assumed about her. Got to move on, so I want to make time for your questions. So, real quick, causation discussion. I'll, I'll boil this down real easy. We don't know. We don't know. It is likely, uh, so evangelicals, most of us out there, tend to explain the causation discussion in two basic ways. You have uh, your childhood, 
sexual abuse or some level of biological experience. But sexual abuse is one of the leading narratives out there. <coughs> that people that have been abused sexually turn out to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. The truth is that most people that have experienced childhood sexual abuse actually turn out to be heterosexual, the vast majority. And again, this is where correlation and causation should not be confused, right? Um, and so one of the fundamental narratives that gets explained out there is that uh, this, and by the way, this is true of Exodus International that no longer exists uh, in some ways, thankfully. Uh, this is the fundamental assumption of conversion therapy. This is the fundamental assumption of reparative therapy, that there has been a, uh, a biological wound or a relational wound or a sexual wound that has happened in childhood, and as a result, this, their uh, psyche has been damaged, and therefore they are looking for, in the same sex, what was damaged in them as a child. Not fair. Not fully true. Is it true that there is a higher degree of sexual abuse among gay Yes, it is true. But we shouldn't make the mistake of saying that's causation. The reality is most of the scientific literature out there shows us that uh, Dr. Yarhouse uh, points out that it's probably four different things. Biological causes or antecedents, childhood uh, experiences, environmental influences, and adult decisions. By, we, by adult decisions, they don't mean I woke up and decided to be gay, meaning identity commitments and things along those lines, right? Um, but the long story short is I want to free us from having the causation discussion because many people think if, if I'm born gay, then this is like eye color. It can't be changed. It is a fixed part of my DNA. God is okay with that, and it should be celebrated. And that's, there's a lot of jumps there. It's not like eye color, okay? Um, and the reality that we want to tell people is that we don't know what fully causes this. But when someone says, this is how I was born, we shouldn't laugh at them because it's all they've ever known. It is all I've ever known. So I say that because I want you to look in the face of somebody who says that. All I've ever known. So you can imagine if it's all you've ever known, the propensity to say, this is how I was born. And this is who God created me to be. How dare you tell me? And, and I think everyone in this room and everybody among us should ask ourselves, or should think through, what are we asking of people when we're asking them to abandon what we've never experienced, but it's been true of them their entire life, right? It's just, we need to think about that humbly. Uh, and for many of these individuals, it's not just who they believe they've been all their life. It's to abandon a community that's been the only group of people that has been there for them ever, right? And to come to the one community <laughs> that at least historically has never been there for them. So we see what we're asking, right? Um, and so causation, it, you know, it amounts to a push, these, all these various things. And so Dr. Yardhouse has a real good explanation. There's multiple ways to get from the East Coast to the West Coast. I can go a number of different ways. But when I arrive there, I can arrive in a number of different places. So there's probably a number of different factors that come together that allow someone to see themselves as homosexual or bisexual. And there's all of the homosexuality is not all the same. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. 
And I haven't even got into the language of the affirmation movement who uh, gender uh, conformity and heteronormativity are considered bad words. <laughs> and so if you are, you are, uh, consider yourself a heterosexual and this is what's right, you're considered heteronormative and that's considered a bad thing and people don't see themselves. So what's happening in our culture is the binary of male-female is being rejected completely. And uh, that's, a, that's, another con that's another conference or conversation. Uh, but uh, the, when we boil down the causation discussion, we simply want to say it does amount to a push, but we can look at somebody and say there is something to the nature versus nurture discussion. And we can affirm that without saying this is okay, this is how God created you, because we believe that the image, again, right, is marred because of the fall in that depravity has affected our genes, it has affected our psyche, it has affected our, our, our mind, right? It, it's affected every aspect of it. So it's not surprising that we would find a number of different sexual expressions, even, in, even among heterosexuals, the inability by some to remain celibate or to remain uh, monogamous, right? We see broken sexuality everywhere. And we use that word for the first time today. And it's certainly not just in the context of homosexuality. Okay? Uh, so orientation as a focus. It's not a biblical construct. Orientation is not a biblical construct. And when we make it the point, we elevate something that the scriptures do not elevate. And so we want to pull away from the orientation discussion and talk more about, again, going back to the image and what is appropriate and what we want to see for someone. Because if we, um, if we make that a goal of sanctification, then we make someone's heterosexual potential tied to their godliness. Think about what that may do. If you are asked to come to Christ and that you need to change, and by changing, you need to change your orientation, what if that never changes and you walk day in and day out doing your best to walk for the Lord, always feeling like you are a second-class citizen because the attraction hasn't left you? That's 11 years of my Christian experience. I've been a Christian for 16 years. Somewhere around the five years ago, God woke me up and he said, you are who I say you are. You're not what you experience. But I believed, and I had people that pushed me in that direction. I believed that because this still existed, I was fundamentally flawed and God wasn't happy with me on any given day. I started every day at a B minus. Think about what that does to somebody's walk with the Lord. To this day, as a 41-year-old man, six kids, a wife of, uh, gosh, how long have we been married? Um, a long time. I, I still struggle with how God sees me because I still struggle with how I see myself. And I have to say to myself often, you are a child of the king because you have been reconciled to God through the gospel, and that's what's true of you. Same-sex attraction is not what's true of you. Now, the gay community, and I have those friends, would say, well, all you're doing is lying to yourself. And I simply would say, no, I'm not lying to myself. I'm more honest with myself than you might ever imagine. What I am saying is that there's something better, and that something is Jesus.
And what I want you to be able to do, same-sex attracted friend or a gay and lesbian individual, is to say that trust God that he has a better view of your sexuality in the long term than you or I even could imagine. Can you trust him in that? And if you can't, then there's that, a more fundamental problem than sexuality, right? There's a more fundamental problem. And so lastly, when we look at this, is to say change. What do we mean by change? By now, you probably know by change, I don't mean you become a heterosexual or uh, gender dysphoria goes away. You no longer feel that inner angst of, of what it may be to be a woman but be a man. Those, again, that's not necessarily what change means. Can that happen? Yes. Has it happened? Yes. Is it normative? No. It is not. And so we want to be honest about what we mean by change. Because reparative therapy, and that has largely been debunked, and uh, conversion therapy have offered a change that is now mocked because a lot of the people who represented that in the community for us for years were found failing, found at gay bars, found uh, buying sex. Why? Because they weren't really changed by the gospel? No, but because we had a wrong understanding of what it meant to be changed. And we held them accountable to a standard that's not the standard that God is holding them accountable to. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is a beautiful scripture that I misunderstood for most of my Christianity. And so he lays into this litany of, uh, do you not know that this list of individuals that includes the effeminate and the homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says these awesome words, but such were some of you. And you have been washed. And, and those words, I'm like, yes. And so I believe that such were some of you meant you no longer struggle with this. And I've had pastors take me to pulpits and pray with me and say, hey, this is gone. You're never going to have to deal with it again until like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and it rears its ugly head and you're, you're angry. You're angry. And so... Uh, I've had counselors as early as a few months ago tell me as we're pursuing this ministry and trying to talk to people about it, hey, Dan, if you're experiencing same-sex attraction, it's because you want it. If you didn't want it, it would go away. And Romans 1 says that God's giving you over to a debased mind. And so therefore, if you want this to stop, then stop it. I'm old enough now to just smile and say, thank you. Check, please, uh, because this individual isn't walking in reality, or biblical reality, I might add. And we'll talk about Romans 1. But what such were some of you is this idea that that was your functional identity. It controlled you. You were a thief. You were a liar. You were separated from God, but you have been washed by the blood of the king, and therefore a new identity covers you. A new reality has come into your life that says this is who you are. That is who you were, but this is not who you are any longer. What a fundamental change. And, and really just pulls shame off of you and allows you to see yourself clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Um. Real briefly on this, and this is our last slide, 
three-tier distinction is something Dr. Yarhouse came up with that was very helpful. So we all say, what percentage of the population is homosexual? It's not a very helpful, it's a, it's a generalized discussion that's not very helpful. So what we, I got this wrong. Those who would say homosexual attraction is somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 to 8% of our population experience same-sex attraction. A lot of people in the church that want to minimize this discussion say, hey, look, it's only 1% to 2% of the population, so it's not a big deal. We're making much ado about nothing here. Well, it's not really fair because those who claim same-sex attraction is probably in the neighborhood of 6 to 8% ticking up slightly in our current culture to probably be more along the lines of 7 to 9%. Now, that's different from those who say, this is my orientation. Okay, they would claim this as an orientation. That number goes anywhere from 3 to 5%. And then those who would say, this is my identity, big G, it's more uh, 2 to 3%. Some would say closer to 1. Does that make sense? How in levels of definition, it actually goes down. But when we say, look at the number of people we want to minister to, it's closer to that quote-unquote 10% number that people say is there of people that are experiencing same-sex attraction. And that shouldn't surprise us in a world that is marred by sin. And, and, and so that shouldn't surprise us that that number is there. And, and if we want to talk about, if we want to use the word disordered in terms of all sexuality, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Think of how high that number probably is, Right? This is not just a conversation about homosexuality or um, lesbian or bisexual or transgender. This is a broader sexual identity discussion. Okay? All right. Questions? We're done with that's session one. So we got about close to about 20 minutes for questions. Um, if you've t tweeted them in or texted them in or asked them, uh, I never feel comfortable saying the word tweeted. Um, but, but yeah, go right ahead. You, Sean, Sean's in charge, but you go right ahead. No, you go right ahead. I can talk loud. Yeah, you're fine. Okay. Oh, sorry. Is same-sex attraction a sin? Good question. You're stealing my thunder. Because uh, <laughs> we're going to come to that. But I'll answer it now. No, no, I'll answer it now. Because we'll go into it more. Um, what I would say to you is that, uh, this also involves a broader discussion of sin and temptation. Uh, I know, I know, at, at a church like TCC, I got a room full of theologians. Uh, and so there is a broader discussion of sin and temptation that should happen. And there are various views. I believe there's probably a five views book out there about sin and temptation, the relationship of those two things. Um, what I would say to you is I, I want to be very clear and very nuanced that I believe that same-sex attraction is a part of the fall. And therefore, if rightly understood by the individual, and this takes spiritual maturity, if rightly understood by the individual, should be mourned over. So I have come to see my same-sex attraction not much as a frustration, but as an opportunity for me to take on lament to God. Not because that I'm, cul that I'm culpable, but I am responsible because Adam's sin has, um, has, has proceeded to me. And so same-sex attraction being a part of the fall, I do not believe it is part of an active sinful lifestyle, someone that is choosing this. I have not chosen this. 
and I mean anyone, any male or female, who's experiencing the brokenness of a sexual world that we live in, and things happen to you out of nowhere, and you're like, what? what? I didn't ask for that. But I am very responsible for what I do with that. And the line between an attraction and an emotional commitment or uh, a fantasy, is it can be very thin sometimes. But I, I think we are condemning people to shame if we say that the very attraction is an ongoing sin in your life. I mean, that's painful. So, yeah, yep. Okay, so my follow-up question is, this is giving me a new framework for ultimately conversion. So if God looks at all sin in the same way, so the person who gets saved who's really struggling with covetousness or greed or um, lying or hatred or anger, all of those things, perhaps we should have the perspective that instead of you're saved, now you're free from those things, walking alongside with them for a long extended time as the Lord works those things out of them. Because the way you explained you know, if a homosexual gets saved, the expectation I think for a lot of people is awesome, turn away, you're done mm-hmm. with that lifestyle. But from your perspective, no, it takes time. I mean, it does. So, anyway, I, I was curious yeah, what you Several saying. things I'd say to that. One is uh, I think there is something to be said for where we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's something to be said for the idea of Paul says, test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. There's this seeming, seems to be the sense that he's saying that salvation isn't, it is a spiritually, once seated in the heavenly places, you are now positionally righteous and perfect before the Lord. But the process of progressive sanctification is what God declares to be true about you, you are now working that out in practice until he comes. Does that make sense? And I, I believe it's... Sean back there who put that definition in my heart long ago through a context of Ephesians in saying that we are positionally righteous. We are seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. But today, am I the guy that's walking out that I'm seated at the right hand of God? I can't say that. But does that mean I'm not a Christian? No way. I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling, and I think we all should do that. And I think this, so there's, there is that sense. I would say, though, that I don't want to say that God looks at all sin exactly the same because there is, I, I think all sin has the same effect. But I would say that sexual sin is a sin against one's own body and therefore carries a, a greater degree, not of consequences like hell, but consequences on the life. And so I, I do think God recognizes that. But it's not like we're going to put you in this corner now. You know, I don't, but, yeah. Hello, uh, my name is Carla. And um, you were mentioning about the, like, the factors that kind of, like, influence someone, like, as a homosexual. And you mentioned, like, some biological factors. Uh, well, or you, you, I saw in the slide, but I really didn't... Um, 
get like the the concept of it uh can you like explain a little bit more about how like your genes or or i don't know if that has something to do with it but how like kind of like that comes to like to the effect of being like that yeah this is a great question and it's a it's an area of studies that the how to say this the nerdiest among us might struggle in diving into people who love to read research studies, right? And so there are studies that have been done on the male hypothalamus gland. There are studies that have been done in the correlation of sexuality between humans and animals and what we see take place in the animal kingdom. Uh, there are uh, twin relationship studies that have been done. Uh, and so when we say biological factors, we're not affirming those things as much as we're saying that literature is there, that literature is inconclusive. And so it is, is it fair to say that it prob there are probable biological pushes? Yes, it's fair to say that. Can we say that definitively? Like there is, the biological antecedents have made this to be true about an individual? No, we cannot say that. And anybody who tries to get on TV and CNN and say, well, this has been proved in the scientific literature, that is not true. And they probably don't have someone talking with them that's going to do due diligence to make them ask that question and answer it and say, no, we actually, the, the literature isn't fully clear. But the Kinsey studies and, the, and, and all of those things that are out there lead us to say that there is most likely, it's fair to say that there are probably some genetic pushes. What we want to affirm biblically, because again, we have nothing to fear from the discussion of research and relationship of science and the scriptures. For some reason, we seem to have this animosity towards science, and we shouldn't. Uh, you know, Tim Keller has a very good point on this when he says, when I'm proposed with something in science that challenges my biblical belief, I don't abandon my biblical belief and say science is true. What I also don't do is say science is crazy, the Bible is true, and move on. I look at the literature, I read it, and I go back to my Bible, and I study it, and I pray, and I ask God to enlighten my heart. And probably what comes out of that is a greater understanding of the scriptures and a, a, a probable acceptance to an extent of what's being said here. And those things form a, a synthesis with the Bible being the foundational source of truth. And so what I think is, in, in this sense, we believe that the primary thing about someone is that they are an image bearer, and that because of sin, that that image is broken, right? And so my, my, my son, who I love, who I struggle to think is a disorder, people say Down syndrome is a disorder, I haven't found a negative thing about it, really, to be honest with you, personally. But that only exists because of the fall. It's a fact. Cancer only exists because of the fall. Am I comparing homosexuality and Down syndrome and cancer? No. I'm simply saying that there are, we are not genetically today what we were created to be. And so it does, shouldn't surprise us when we see variations that are, are, do not walk in correlation with what we believe biblical design is. Does that make sense? That's as smart as I get. I don't. <laughs> this is it's tough. 
When you were talking uh, earlier about the side A and the side B, um, I was thinking about um, you know how you have alcoholics, and once they um, deal with that and get over it, they call themselves recovering alcoholic. Would that be a good analogy to what you were saying about the side B people, somebody like yourself, who s says they're gay but are not acting on it? Would it be like? <laughs> Mm -hmm. I hear you. You know uh, what I mean? Because I'm trying to... I'm processing it. Uh, there's... That's, that's I know a, any analogy no, 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 is that's a, fall that's a fair, down, you know? It's a fair analogy. It's a fair analogy. Um, so they, the, the only thing that the side B person uh, would say is that, whereas you might say recovering, because now alcoholic is a wholly bad word, they would say gay is not a wholly bad word. They would say that it doesn't just mean sexual expression. It means gay has come, in, come on to take a huge, uh, it means a greater understanding of hospitality. It means a greater respect for beauty and aesthetics in the world. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying that's that is what's being said of the word. And so they would argue that there, there are things about their gayness that are to be celebrated and expressed even within beauty in the biblical community that don't have anything to do with attraction. So that's the side B. That would be side B. Okay. But from your perspective, would you, would you say that you were like a recovering? No. No. I'm not a recovering nothing. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I don't like that. So that's not. Yeah, I don't like those. I don't like that terminology, even in and and uh, I I don't have. But you the, know the term how right. alcoholic. I don't have the experience of, of an alcoholic. But here's what oh, I would okay. say, is that there are no asterisks next to you are one in Christ. There are no asterisks next to that. So I am in Christ. I am unified with Christ, and, and so there are no asterisks next to that, and I don't need to put any next to that that help people qualify my experience. I simply need to say this is what's true about me. So when someone says, so when Justin Lee and them, Wesley Hill and them, I, I think we say, I would talk to them and say, I disagree with taking that on as an identity because most people have no idea what you're talking about. The Only the people who are reading this know what you're talking about. And in the name of being kind, I think they're leading to a number of confusions over here. While, and they're not getting heard because most people, especially in older generations, and I'm not saying that's bad, but most people can't hear past, I'm a gay Christian, right? They, what do you mean by that? And, and so I don't think, and, and by the way, I think that, that gay is primarily about same-sex attraction, and because I believe that that is fundamentally not what God has designed and it is sin, I don't believe it is helpful to carry that as an identity marker at all. Yeah. But I understand why people do. Um, so I am kind of walking <clears throat> through life with a guy at work who, uh, who is gay and is in an active lifestyle, one of the things he's helped me kind of see is that um, attraction doesn't always mean physical. 
Um, it's like very, what he says, he's like, I'm just more emotionally drawn to guys because they understand me better. They understand like what I'm going through. Can you speak to that? Because I think the first thing that we think of is like, we go to Romans 1 and we think, you know, it's disgusting. It's that it's all sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever, you know, he told me that, it was kind of like mind opening. I was like, I didn't, you know, think about that. Like that's, that's attraction. You know, he's feeling more connected on a emotional level mm-hmm. with, can you kind of, yeah. I mean, do you think that's true for most or not maybe most, but is that a side we don't really think about? We don't talk about it a lot because I think, uh, I think most people probably don't want to get bogged down there, but I think it's important actually. And here's why I'll say this. Um, and I'll just be vulnerable with you. It's kind of hard to be, but I'll be vulnerable with you. Um, I don't desire an emotional relationship with a man at all, like I do have with my wife. I don't desire that at all. My temptation is primarily physical. That's not true of everybody, though. Remember what I said earlier, East Coast to West, primary, there's different places to arrive. That's not true of everybody. Um, and so I, I have counseled somewhat a young man for a long time in, in our life uh, that wants deeply an emotional relationship with a man. I believe that's part of the, the, the broken reality of sin. Here's why. Um, I get emotional if I talk about my wife. And in certain contexts, Sean's been a dear friend of mine for uh, 15, 16 years. I get emotional talking about that relationship. Not in the same way at all. I love him, and I do see that that is part of the biblical reality of David and Jonathan. And I don't think, well, the, the hermeneutic twist that you have to come to to believe that that means a gay relationship is, um, it's not, it strains credibility. But uh, I don't, um, I do believe that men are called to love each other deeply and, and honestly emotionally. But when that becomes the desire that I have to be held and loved and comforted like I do with my wife, I believe that is sin, and I believe it's not helpful, and which is why reparative therapy has done a number of damaging things because it has put people in rooms and assumed that their wound was a dad wound and they needed a deep love and hug of a man. Well, if you're struggling with homosexuality, that is not what you need in that moment. Uh, And it can set someone on a spiral further than it is helpful. And that's just one aspect of reparative therapy and some of the things that have been done to people. But, uh, and so again, that's not my fundamental need. Uh, I do have need of male relationship because it's biblical and it's beautiful. But um, uh, I adore my wife and I love the, the relationship we have emotional intimacy of, of trust that's built over the context of years and the desire to have a future together and go places and raise our children. That's beautiful. That is not the desire I have for male friendship. And if I did, I think that would be a problem. I think that would be a real problem. So I think affirming that that's real in him uh, and helping him understand that his desire for male friendship is beautiful when rightly ordered. 
and not something to be totally denied or walked away from. And for you to fear. God bless you for being his friend, even though you know that's a reality in his life because we can act as Christians. We can be driven out of fear. And so we walk away from that and, and don't push through the difficult dance in order to get to the better relationship. One more? Yeah. I, um, I've had a few friends at work in different places. Um, I try to work through these different things. Um, my question more deals with um, because of these disordered relationships, it can sometimes be confusing on kind of who's the best person to speak this truth into their life, um, whatever the individual. So I know that I've encountered, you know, women at work and even women at the church who I know that they need to be ministered to just because their heart is hurting. They need maybe recon to be reconciled to God. And typically, if it's a woman, I'm usually thinking, how can I connect this woman to my wife? How can I connect this woman to another person who can share the gospel to them? Because typically, I'm not usually the best person to meet this woman in that um, sensitive time, vulnerable time. With just the disordered relationships, I get confused sometimes. Like, I had a coworker that I love her. She's great. And I know that she's living an active homosexual lifestyle. Um, she just... I don't know if she technically was married, but, and I want to, I know she's happy about that. I want to celebrate with her joys while at the same time I can't celebrate in other ways. Um, but who's, what, I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but what does friendship look like in terms of, does it, is it best for a woman to speak to a woman struggling with heterosexuality or um, same-sex attraction? Or I have a, male co-worker who struggles with this, does it need to be a woman speaking to him or does it need to be me? What does that look yeah. like gender-wise? Yeah, no, yeah. I, so I will say this. I'll admit this up front. I'm going to be less likely than a lot within the Christian community to draw a hard and fast complementarian. And I, just to be honest, we talked about this, I probably would not be exactly the same way your elders would be. I do believe in complementarianism. I just probably would not be exactly in the same place. So I... I I wouldn't draw so many hard and fast conclusions about the ability of a man to talk to a woman or vice, you know, vice versa. That being said, uh, I do believe there are boundaries that are appropriate. And uh, the last thing, and I'm not making fun of you with my expressions, I just am that way, but the last thing you would want to do is send a young man struggling with homosexuality to, to a lady because he's gay and she needs... She, that's the... I, I just don't think that is an appropriate construct. Uh, but I understand why it's asked, because the fair question is, am I going to be a stumbling block? Not just me, like, I'm so awesome. But uh, am I going to be a stumbling block because I'm a man and this individual has confessed that they struggle with same-sex attraction? Um, I believe that you are still called to relate to that young man. Uh, and I think you should. And I think this example of pushing through the, the messiness uh, and because ultimately the relationship between two men is a rightly ordered relationship and is a beautiful thing. Uh, and so your ability to counsel him is always going to be more involved than a female's ability to counsel him. Those are some of the boundaries I do believe in for sure. 
Uh, do I believe a female can't talk to him about it? Of course not. I believe that. I think that's fine. But there are, there are boundaries. Uh, and uh, so I would think that gender, that doesn't change what should happen. What should happen in any other relationship, if your conviction is that you want to push this young lady to Dana, right, to your wife, then I think if it's a lady, that, that tendency should still exist. Right? Or if it's a guy, you should still want to draw near and minister. I don't think the fact that they struggle with same-sex attraction should mean, you know. Now, I think it is fair to ask, as the relationship grows and deepens, a greater level of vulnerability exists. And I do think it's fair to say, you need to be honest with, with me about where you are at any time. And you need to know that I'm safe and you can say that to me. And it won't be met with judgment. Is that fair? If I may step in, make sure that you um, write down your questions. Uh, there should be some paper on your on your uh, tables. Text them to me. Uh, one final up, uh, final follow up to what Dan was saying, and then we'll kind of be released for a, a little bit of a break. Would be, um, I'm not exactly sure what you're speaking to about our complementarian differences. Um, I don't know what those are, but um, so we can talk about that. But. Um, in, in regards to, and if you want to respond. I've become is, less complementarian over the years. But you're still. But I still am. Yeah. I do believe in male-female roles in the church, and yes. So, see, I'm not sure where we differ. So, um, I'm, you, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, what I mean to say is this, Robbie, for your question, is that when someone, I mean, the scriptures speak to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore men a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The issue for us is not can a man minister to a woman or can a woman minister to a man. The issue is what is your heart doing when you minister to them? And if attraction begins to be what begins to happen in that restorative relationship, then you've got to wave the flag. And you've got to pull out because the Bible says here that it will be a temptation for some. And so in some senses, I have no problem with men caring or praying for women. I actually do that a lot. But there is a sense where if you're at all tempted, you take somebody else with you. Or you have to admit that you're weak and something else is going on here besides their redemption. And you need to connect them to another relationship. So that's why that principle would apply of connect them to your wife. It's not that you can't minister to them. It would be a declaration of might be what's going on in the individual's heart. So I agree with Dan and what he's saying there. And, and, I, I, and I agree with that. So, <laughs> so that was Galatians 6, 1 and 2. So I think we just got to be careful as we seek to love one another about our own hearts in the process of loving. So I can't say how thankful I am for all that we've done so far. Um, let's take a break. Our brains need a rest. Um, and so text me questions. Write them down. You guys have been great at asking them. And, then, and there's, Yeah, there's uh, some books in the back. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any to sell yet, but I brought some recommendations. They, they move from counseling world to some, a few that I'll point out that are not theologically sound, but a good way for you to understand the affirming argument, and then some others that are minister well. And so they're out there for you to look at. And uh, this was all intellectually front-loaded, so ne the next session will be mostly relation, 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 practical. So. Stupendous. Let's take a break.